All right. Well, good morning, Docs at Church. Um, this is really cool, okay? I know you can't see this, but we're in the auditorium. It's super awesome. Uh, I was singing back there, and I'm excited for when we get to be here together. This auditorium is going to sound awesome once we actually get to gather together, lift up our voices. But I am very sure it sounded great from your living room, okay? I'm sure it sounded great. Here's what we're doing this morning, okay? We're continuing our study through Acts. Um, that's where we've been. And we're going to try to kind of more or less cover five chapters, okay? <laughs> Chapter 1 through 25. We're going to basically spend our whole time in chapter one, and really, that's kind of a summary of really all of these chapters. And so we're getting to really the end of Paul's story. Okay, we still got two more weeks in Acts. We're still going to kind of continue his story, but really what Luke is doing in these chapters, he's starting to wind down the story of Paul's life. And Paul's going to have this kind of, this moment that really defines the answer for one question for Luke, and he's actually giving us the story to answer a question for us, and it's this question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Or maybe another way to say it is this. What is the pattern of life? What is the shape of the life of someone who has chosen to follow Jesus? That's what these chapters are about, okay? Now, before we jump in to chapter 21, I wanna just start in chapter 20 because there's this moment where Paul kind of tells us what he's about to do. And so we need to read that. So chapter 20, verse 22 This is what Paul says. He's talking to his friends. He's talking to his loved ones. And he says this, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. I am constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Look what he says next. He says, But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. That moment, Paul deciding in his heart, I'm gonna set my eyes towards Jerusalem. That's where I'm going. And even though I know it will cost me, I'm choosing to go there. That is gonna start this kind of series of a a bunch of stories that are gonna happen in chapter 21 through 25. And so here's where this starts. Chapter 21, start reading with me in verse one. It says this, and when he had parted from them and he set sail, he came by a straight way to the course to cause and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and he set sail. When he had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so I just want us to quick slow down here and just see what he's doing. Because Luke has taken, like sometimes he'll write like six months worth of Paul's life in like a paragraph. And here he just spent like a whole paragraph just telling you all the different routes of the ship that he's taking, all the different cities he's landing in. He's slowing the story down because he wants us to pay attention. And it is as though he's like, I want you to picture what it felt like to be on the ship heading towards Jerusalem. And I want you to feel what it was like to have Cyprus just kind of float past on the left and kind of slowly fade out of view. He's slowing it down. He wants us to pay attention. This is what he says in verse five. When when our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey. 
And they all, with wives and children, they accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And we greeted the brothers, and we stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed, and we came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Okay? I don't even know what that means, but that's cool. One of the seven, okay? He's this really cool evangelist. He's got this kind of this name. He's one of the seven. But they end up staying with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And look what happens next, verse 10. While we were staying with them for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there, we urged him to not go up to Jerusalem. But then Paul answered and he said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we would not persuaded and since he would not be persuaded we ceased and said let the will of the Lord be done and after these days we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem now what happens in Jerusalem we don't have time to read all this so let me just summarize it they go to this guy's house whose name is Manason okay not Mason not Nason Manason, M-N-A-S-O-N, I know, very cool. So they get to this guy's house and they start to have this meeting with some of the brothers and sisters, the Christians in the city. They gather them around and they start to tell them like, this is everything that we've seen God do through the Gentiles. As we shared the gospel, this is all the things that have happened and people are celebrating. They're like, this is amazing, this is so exciting. But then like in the same sentence they go, okay, now celebration over, Paul, we gotta figure out how to save you, okay? Because people know you're in the city, they've heard and they wanna kill you. And so they come up with this plan and they say, we've got these guys, they're, they're under a vow. And so what if you actually joined up with them? What if you paid for them to shave their heads and then you joined in with them in this vow and you go into the temple and you worship for seven days, okay? This is like the most Jewish thing you could possibly do, okay? These guys are like the Navy SEALs. They're like the special forces of Jewish worshipers. And so they're like, hey, Paul, what if you uh, join up with them And you kind of do that vow thing. And then everyone in the city, they will see that you haven't turned your back on the law or the temple or anything like that. But they will actually start to see that even though you're preaching this message of salvation by grace, they'll see that you haven't turned your back on the history of Israel or the temple or the law. And maybe they might back off. And so Paul says, okay, I'll do this. This isn't a problem, right? Even though he's a Christian, he's still Jewish. And so he does it. Seven days devoted worship in the temple, but towards the end of it, word gets out and people realize who he is. And so this is what we see in verse 27. It says, when the days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him. And they began crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And so as the story continues, a mob forms. They drag him out of the temple and they start to beat him. 
The whole city is in an uproar. There's this massive group of people. They don't even really know what's going on. They just know there's someone in the middle of this crowd getting beaten who has done something really bad. Paul is in the middle. They are trying to kill him. Eventually the Roman kind of guards, they hear about this, right? They kind of hear this commotion and they run over and they're trying to get in through the crowd to figure out what's going on. And they don't know what's going on. Everyone has a different answer for what Paul has done. But they eventually get to Paul and they arrest him. They bind him in chains because whatever he did, it seems pretty bad. And they bring him back to the barracks and the crowd is following them the whole way, shouting. And when they finally get to the steps, the the story tells us that the crowd is so violent that these soldiers have to physically lift up the body of Paul and carry him up the steps out of the crowd because if they didn't, he was going to be killed by them. And in the mess, as the crowd is screaming for the blood of Paul to be spilled, Paul asks the soldiers to stop. And he asks them if he can speak to the crowd. And it actually says that he pleads with them. Like he pleads with them, let me speak to the people. And verse 40, when he had given them permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And then there was a great hush And he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And this is what he said. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And I've been brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of kind of the main religious leaders of the day according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, talking about Christianity. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed to Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way, and as I drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. Saul is also called Paul. So he's saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting and he goes on to tell them how the brightness of seeing the risen Christ would leave him blind for three days he goes on to tell them how he'd be prayed over to receive his sight how he would be baptized as a follower of Jesus and how God had now given him a call on his life to actually preach the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles and then verse 22 it says up to this word they listened to him But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. The story goes on, okay? But I just wanna stop here and I just want us to just take a minute and just notice something. From this moment on, for the entire rest of Paul's life, he will be in chains. In the rest of the book of Acts, he will go from prison to prison, from trial to trial. He will eventually stand trial before this crowd. He will eventually stand trial before the Sanhedrin. In chapter 23, there's gonna be another attempt on his life, even while he's in prison. He will stand before Felix, the governor. 
Eventually, years later, he just kind of stuck in the system of justice. Eventually, Festus will take over as governor, and he will stand before him as well. And eventually, he will end up in Rome under house arrest. And in the middle of this, we are told that the gospel will go forth even from his prison cells. He will write much of the New Testament during this time. Some of his letters come from this point in his life. And we are told even in his house prison in Rome, the gospel will go forth freely, but Paul will not be free. This is the end of Paul's freedom in this world, and he knew it. He knew what going to Jerusalem meant. He knew what it would mean if he went and preached the gospel there, but he did it anyway. Guys, this is one of the amazing moments in history. This is worth stopping and staring at the grace of God that has shaped the life of this man, okay? And so that's all I want to do for the rest of this talk is I just want to see two things. Two things we see from this story. The message of Paul's life and the shape of his life, okay? The message of his life. This moment, okay, where this bruised, beaten man stands above the crowd. He motions with his arm like to hush, right? And the crowd gets silent and he begins to tell them his story in Hebrew, This is one of the stunning moments in history. Like of history, this is one of the stunning moments, okay? Paul, who stood above Stephen's murder in chapter eight, right? It was by his authority and it was by his voice that the first Christian blood was shed. And so everyone laid down their coats in honor at his feet saying, look at what you've done. You've killed the first Christians. It was this badge of honor, This is the man who persecuted and imprisoned and killed so many Christians. They were forced to flee the city, who created a special position of authority to pursue them outside the walls of Jerusalem, even to these faraway cities. And it was on the road to Damascus, on the way to hurt and kill and imprison more Christians, that Jesus met him and saved him. And that grace, that free gift of grace has shaped so much of Paul's life. It shaped everything about his life. And so now many years later, he has come home. His life, his character, his desires, his entire being has been so transformed by Jesus He has spread the gospel through many of the cities of the known world. He has become one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known, probably the greatest missionary the world has ever known. He has written much of the New Testament. He has discipled and led so many people to Jesus. And now he has come back to Jerusalem, to the city where he used to kill Christians, not so that they can lay down their coats in honor at his feet, but so that he can lay down his life at theirs. I love this man. I love the Apostle Paul. I am so excited to be able to sit with him someday and talk with him. I'm excited to be in heaven with him and to just stand next to him and like see Jesus together and just talk with him about how amazing Jesus is. The Apostle Paul is one of the greatest trophies of God, one of the greatest evidences of the grace of God for sinners. And this moment, this life, it is like this megaphone to people 
that Jesus loves sinners. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. This is Paul writing this letter. He says, this saying is trustworthy and it is deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, meaning as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And it is as though in these moments, as the crowd of angry people closes around him, it is like he is saying to all of them, and it's like he is saying to all of us, and it's like he is saying to whoever you are who's clicked on this and watched it. It's like Paul is saying, look at my life. Look at the blood that is on my hands. Look at me, all of me, my story, who I am. I was just like you. I was you, but Jesus met me on the road. I wasn't running to him, I was persecuting him. When I met him, he told me that the blood that was on my hands was his blood. And then the very next thing he did was he gave me grace. And he forgave me. He called me his friend. He saved me. He gave me a hope and a future and he welcomed me into the family of God. And it is like in this moment as Paul is speaking in Hebrew to the crowd, it is like he is saying, if the grace of God is powerful enough to save me, then it can save anyone. And it can save you. And if you are watching this this morning and you have not experienced the grace of God, I am telling you, Paul is speaking to you and telling you, the grace of God is powerful enough to save you. Jesus loves you when he meets a sinner on the road. He gives him a hug. That's what he wants to do to you this morning. Paul This was the message of his life. And it's the message of the whole Bible. The grace of God for anyone who will receive it. Grace that is free to us because Jesus has paid the cost in full. And over these next chapters, Paul will stand before trial after trial, different rulers, different groups of people. And in all of these moments, in some way, he's gonna be able to share his story and tell of the grace of God. It's the message of his life. It's the message of his life, but I, w- I want us to see the shape of his life, okay? Because actually one of the things that Luke is doing in these chapters is something very intentional and he actually really wants us to notice this, okay? So I'm just gonna lay out like the pattern, kind of like in broad strokes, the story that we just read, okay? Paul, he, he sets his sight toward Jerusalem, right? And he knows that suffering awaits him there, but he goes anyway, And actually everyone around him tells him not to go to Jerusalem. They say, don't go. They don't understand. He gets in trouble with the religious leaders. He gets arrested after this kind of thing that happens in the temple. There's a series of false trials where false witnesses are brought forward. And in the end, the Romans can't figure out why they want him to die, but all the Jewish leaders are screaming for his death. Do these chapters and acts remind you of anything? Let me ask you this question, that summary, whose life is it describing? Is it Paul's or is it Jesus's? 
Well, actually what Luke is doing is he, he actually wants us to make that connection. It's like if you hold up the story of Jesus at the end of Luke's gospel, and then you hold up the end of Paul's life at the end of Acts, it's, it's like they're almost like mere images of each other. They're so similar, even down to like the pacing, the structure of the story, the sentences actually, like the individual stories that are highlighted, it is as though the story of Paul's life had been written by tracing over the life of Jesus. And Luke doesn't just come out and say this. What he does is actually something much more powerful than that. Over many chapters and through many different ways, he is showing us what the life of someone looks like who's been changed by the grace of Jesus. Paul's life, his story, his willingness to go and suffer in Jerusalem on behalf of the name of Jesus, that pattern of life is Paul's, is Luke's answer to the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Luke's saying, that's what it looks like. And this story that we're reading, okay, it's a two-part work, right? This is Acts. This is like part two of this story that Luke's writing. The first one was on Jesus, right? That's the gospel of Luke. And the second one is on Acts, what Jesus continues to do through his people. What Luke is doing through these chapters is he is wrapping up a question that started all the way back in Luke 9. This question, who is Jesus, first of all? And second of all, what does it mean to follow him? Okay, so don't go there in your Bible. This is gonna take too long, but Luke 9 This is what Jesus does. He asks his followers. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, there's a lot of different answers to that, Jesus. And he says, yeah, okay, but you, you, disciple, you, Christian, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ. You're the son of God. And he says, you're right. That's who I am. And then he goes on and explains, this is what it means for me to be the Christ. It means that I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem I'm gonna, I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die and only after that am I gonna be raised to life again and as they heard this they, they didn't understand it because it wasn't what they were expecting right it was completely upside down from the way they viewed the world from the way they viewed Jesus the idea that the cross would be the pathway that led to resurrection the idea that Jesus first crown would be one with thorns it made no sense to them And if we're honest, it makes very little sense to us. And it's why the very next thing Jesus says is this. He says, this is what it means for you. And he said to all, everyone who's around trying to follow Jesus, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, Luke isn't telling us a story about a man who was over the top in his passion for the gospel. He isn't even telling us a story about a man who had incredible love for people that we should admire. He is telling us a story about a life that has been completely shaped by the grace of Jesus. What Luke is teaching us, what he's trying to tell us today is that he's saying the life that has been shaped by the grace of Jesus, it takes on the shape of Jesus' life. The life that has been conformed around the gospel of grace, the gospel, the message of Jesus' life, the life that's conformed around that actually begins to take the shape of Jesus' life. Luke is using Paul's life as a picture 
as a pattern of what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is how John Piper says it here. And, and so listen to this quote. This was really helpful as I was studying this. He says, what we all must learn, what everyone who wants to follow Jesus has to learn, is that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is our journey. And if he set his face to go there and die, then we must set our face to die with him. Now listen to what he says. He says, now one might be tempted to reason in just the opposite way, right? That since Jesus suffered so much and he died in our place, therefore we are free to go straight to the head of the class, as it were, to skip all the exams, Right, and he starts to like say things that we say, right? He suffered so much that we could have comfort. He died so that we could live. He bore abuse so that we could be esteemed. He gave up the treasures of heaven so that we could lay up treasures on earth. He brought the kingdom of heaven and paid for our entrance and now we live in it with all of, our, with all of its earthly privileges. The problem is that Jesus' kingdom isn't an earthly one, it's a heavenly one. And he says, when Jesus set his face to walk the Calvary road, he was not merely taking our place, he was setting our pattern. He is the substitute, but he is also the pace setter. And as we stand near the end of this book, and as we look at some of the last chapters of Paul's life, Luke's point is that this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is actually what it means to be a witness of him. It isn't just that you take the story of the man of the cross on your lips and tell the world, but it's actually that your life begins to actually look like his. You have a cross to carry, right? Paul's story with Jesus, it didn't start on the road to Damascus. That's not where it started. It started when he watched a man named Stephen die in front of him. And while dying, he heard this man use his very last words to speak a blessing and a prayer over his life. Stephen wasn't just telling Paul the gospel. He was portraying the crucified Jesus to him in his life. And now Paul has come to Jerusalem to do the same. As Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he explains what is happening when we do this. And this is what he says. He says, Christians, as they, as they live this way of Jesus, it's like they are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What he's saying is he's saying actually this this pattern of life, of Jesus' life that we're called to live, what happens when you live that life is that as you metaphorically, sometimes literally die for the people and the needs of this world, It is as though Jesus himself is standing there. You are portraying in this visible presentation the suffering of Jesus, the love for Jesus for those people, for that need, for that area of injustice, for that neighbor. Listen, the world world will accuse us of many things. They have, they are, and they will. 
will they accuse us of having a life that actually looks like our Savior's? Will they accuse us of having a life that is actually shaped like his? Now listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you just clicked on this and you're watching, this part of the message is not for you. I am not asking you to live like this. If anything, I am apologizing to you that most lives of Christians look very dissimilar from the life of their Savior. Guys, the American church We are some of the richest people who have ever lived. We are more comfortable with more of our desires and our wants being satisfied than any other generation in the history of the world. And I know right now we are in our houses and we are in this little brief window of time where we feel like, oh no, that's not true. Push this moment aside for just a moment. The pattern of our lives is one of fullness, not of scarcity. Most of the anxieties in our lives, they come not from need or scarcity, but they actually come from the sheer excess that surrounds our lives. And while most of our houses and most of our lives and our bank accounts are normally overflowing with the abundance of the blessing of God, the world is on fire. Like today, this morning, okay, just over 203 thousand people have died from the coronavirus thus far okay all across the world in the span of just a few months that is a staggering number it is hard to comprehend but do you know how many people have died from hunger in the exact same window of time it isn't 200,000 it's 2.8 million And because of the way that we have responded to this virus, actually that number is going to be increasing in probably a terrifying way. Do you know how many people have been killed by abortion in that same window of time? Over 13 million. 13 million. Today, like this morning, okay, there are over 3.19 billion people who live in what we call an unreached people group. Meaning that the presence of Christianity, the presence of the church is either completely absent, like zero Christians, or it is so small that there is functionally no presence of the message of Jesus at all. What this means is that for 3.19 billion people, it means that they will be born and they will live And they will die without ever having an opportunity to even reject the message of Jesus because they've never heard it. And America, in this country, we spend more money buying Halloween costumes for our pets every year than we spend trying to solve that problem. For the American Christian, like you, me, for every $100,000 that we spend on whatever, our mortgages, our life insurance, our cars, whatever, the food we need, for every $100,000 we spend, we give $1 to trying to reach those people. And we spend even less of our time. And as I am like reading this story of this man who was so in 
impacted by the grace of Jesus that he just said, I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, even if it's to Jerusalem, I want to go there with him. I'm convicted by my life. I'm convicted by my choices and I feel invited into a different kind of lifestyle. One that isn't just about me and my comfort, but one is actually about the people around me and the needs of the world. And as, as Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, and, and their lives are so much like ours. They're, they're really rich, they're successful, they're comfortable. They, they have these lives that it's not like God is like angry with them, but it's just like if they honestly just look at their life and even for the people around them, they look at their life, it's really hard to actually see the life of Jesus in their life because it looks so different. And as he's talking to these people, this is what he says. He starts to compare their pattern of life with his and their shape of their life with the shape of the life of Jesus. And he just starts asking him, he says like, why, why is it that you are so rich while we are so poor? And why is it that you are full while we are being poured out? And why is it that you have like already received the crown and you're living as though you're already in the kingdom of God in heaven when we have received a cross that we carry? And then this is what he says. He says, I do not write this to, to shame you. I don't want to shame you with these words, but I'm writing to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And then he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. As we get to the end of Paul's life, if he would sit down with us, that's what he'd say. He'd say, I know you look at my life and you think it's crazy, but I'm telling you, this is actually the path to life. Those who try to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their, lose their life for Jesus' sake, they actually find it. And he would tell you, be an imitator of me. Maybe one of the reasons that the world isn't listening to our message is because while Jesus spoke it from a cross, we are trying to speak it from the comfort and the privilege and the riches of those who have chosen the American dream to shape their lives instead of the path to Jerusalem. And maybe the message of the man on the cross only really sounds believable when it's spoken from the lips of people who are also carrying their own. Friends, I didn't, really come to these chapters looking for this message, <laughs> okay? But this is what Jesus is saying to us this morning. And it feels like right now we're in this period of, of suffering, of kind of waiting. Maybe what God is doing is he's trying to like purify something in us. Maybe something in us he's changing so that when this whole thing ends, we won't like continue to run from death, but maybe for the first time in our lives, we might run towards it. I don't know what Jesus is trying to say through this, these chapters. But I feel like what he's doing is he's standing next to us and he's, he's like looking at Jerusalem, whatever that might be for you. And it's like Jesus is saying, that's where I'm going. I, there's need, unbelievable need. And that's what I've come to do is 
is to lay down my life and suffer to try in some way to make that better, to bring the kingdom of God to bear on that place, that person, that situation. And you're like, Jesus, but that's, no, don't go. Like that's gonna cost you your life. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I'm asking you to come with me. Docs of Church, we've chosen to follow Jesus. That's where he's going. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, when you first told us that you came here to die and you came here to suffer, the very first thing we did was we said, no, 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 no. That can't be right. And you said, no, it is right. That actually, that's what I came here to do. And then the very next thing you did was you, you invited us to follow you. And then you, you said, this is, this is gonna feel hard and it's gonna feel like dying, but I'm telling you that this is actually the path to life. I'm telling you this is actually the path to wholeness. I'm telling you that following me isn't actually about giving up your life, but it's actually about finding it. I'm telling you that the way of the cross, the way of giving up your comforts to flee towards the needs of the world isn't actually a way to lose your life, but it's actually how you find it. Jesus, we wanna follow you this morning and whatever needs to change in our life, whether it's big or small, would you change it? Because God, we wanna be your hands and feet. We want to be little Christs who walk into this world so that when people see us, they see and feel and experience you. Jesus, please make that happen this morning. In your name, amen.